when you think about all the things, if you read the newspaper, if you read the news, it's overwhelming. The needs in the world are overwhelming. So you really look for those things that God specifically calls you to. And uh, for us, we've known the Scoggins for many, many years. The picture that was up here, they, they serve in Cochabamba, uh, Colum- uh, not, excuse me, not Colombia, but uh, I always get the country wrong. Not Brazil, Bolivia. And their needs are great, and they're under lots of pressure from the government there, the semi-communist government. They appreciate your prayers. They send uh, email regularly on, along that line. And, and Haiti Lifeline is near and dear to this church's heart and has been for about seven or eight years, I think, from the first team that went out. And so we'd sure commend both of those to you uh, to prayerfully consider those, to come up and get some information and to follow up as you see the Lord leading. Uh, the little fellow behind me has nothing to do with my teaching. Um, I told my son-in-law I never thought I would be a doting grandparent, but I find myself kind of along that margin. Uh, this is Ori Christopher Neville, and many of you were praying for him and his mom after a very tough delivery a couple weeks ago. Ori's a strange name, right? A little unusual. You don't know many Ori's in life, short for Orion, the constellation, and They understand that to mean light giver or light bringer, and Christopher means Christ bearer. So Jesse's and Chris's prayer for this little guy is that he would bring the light of Christ to those folks he meets. And that was my favorite picture of him because his eyes were open. You could see his face. Kathy preferred... Maybe I'm not on, guys. There we go. Kathy preferred this one. Oh, and that's what you wait for. Oh, there it is. So many of you have been praying for him and Jess. We appreciate it, and they're doing much better. So on to the message. Let me... Uh, Did any of you remember this image from two or three years ago? Yeah, Sean, thanks. The engineer among us does. This image was taken uh, two or three years ago in China. That's a $300-plus million building, 14 stories plus. Look at those little toothpicks on the right end of the image. You know, those were piers that were meant to hold that building up. But the truth is they got torrential rains over a long period of time, and that building just fell over like a domino. And those little pier supports, they made absolutely no difference. Absolutely inadequate to hold that building up once the soil got saturated. Uh, Many of you are aware that for about 15 years I ran a business, a home inspection business. Uh, Shameless plug, Mark Ettinger uh, took over that business. Heritage Inspections, if you need an inspection, inspector, that's your guy. Um, But it was something I loved. And basically you're looking at properties for generally prospective buyers. And so along with that, there's lots of stuff to know and to learn and to keep up with. So you get your continuing education credits every year. And so you go to conferences near and far. I was at a conference in Kansas City, and we were listening to an engineer on soil, a soil expert. And I know that sounds like one big yawn, but it wasn't. He he was a very sharp guy, captivating. And one of the reasons everybody was, was really interested in hearing his particular talk was because he was focusing on a house in Kansas City that had not long before this made national news. And it made news because it literally and it spectacularly slid down the hill that it had been built on. And briefly, this is the story. So there's builders, and they've got properties around a cul-de-sac. They want to use every space available. You know, they're trying to maximize that. Totally understandable. 
But the hill on one side was so steep they couldn't build on it. So they brought in fill dirt. And they, they did this all in a way that they thought was legit and appropriate. They thought they got compaction right and all this stuff. They build a house. But as soon as they start, they realize, we've actually got some problems. This isn't going the way we thought. We know we've got a little bit of shifting, a little bit of movement. So they bring in additional engineers, experts, and they say, hey, what do, you, what do you want us to do? So they put piers and supports down. They put steel in the building. They think they're good to go. Well, so the, the house is up. It's built. All the experts are doing a walkthrough. And all these guys say they check, 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 sign off, sign off, sign We are good to go. This house is ready to go, except Gary. And Gary said, not only is this house not ready to go, this house is going to fail spectacularly and soon. And it did. It slid down that hill in about uh, within a week. So you can imagine everybody in the room there is, is asking the same question. The first question that comes up to Gary is, what were you looking at that they weren't? What did you see that no one else there saw? And he said, well, they were looking at the house, and I was looking at the hill. They were looking at the house that was the structure, and I was looking at the foundation it was built on. And no kidding, this is what he said. He said, I walked down the hill, and I looked at the trees. How's this for engineering? Basics. And the trees that had been vertical were like this. And he said, I knew the whole hill was shifting. And the point was this. It didn't matter what they did inside that house. It wouldn't have mattered. Engineers, all that stuff made no difference. Because the hill itself was inadequate to hold the house. So literally, it was on news across the nation. Several years, I could not find an image. I find everything except what I'm looking for, you know, on my online search. But it literally, the news, it just showed it just going like this, just riding right on down the hill. So what we're talking about this morning is the foundation. Now, it's important for a building, but it's equally important for a life. And so we're talking about the foundation of a life and what's adequate and what is inadequate this morning. And guys, this is all to introduce my next series, which is called Foundation. Um, this is going to be eight messages, including this morning. I got a free week because Kent was going to be out of the country, so I stuck an introduction on the front end of a seven-series message, and that's today. So we're going to introduce this series, Foundation. And really, all we're doing, unapologetically, we're looking at some very basic Bible doctrines, some topics that Scripture talks about that are foundational and key for your life and mine. And my hope is that as we look through these, we just do this. We look at what God says about himself and sin and judgment and grace and repentance and consecration and glory. We look at what God has said about those things and we say, are the truths that God's laid out in his word about these things, are they reflected in the way I'm building my life? Are those truths seen in the foundation that I'm building my life on? And if they're not... My hope is that we take account of that and make some changes. This morning on the introduction, we're just talking about the whole concept that all of us have a foundation in life. All of us are building on a set of presuppositions or beliefs. And guys, this is the thing. You can always tell what a person really believes by what they do. It's not necessarily what we say, but it's what we do. And so as we're looking through this scripture this morning, we'll be in a simple text. I hope I don't rob anything from Kent. We're going to look actually at the last part of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Kent's been diligently leading us through that series, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
for the last few years. I just want to grab the end of that and look at what Jesus says about foundations and their adequacy. And by the way, let me say this again. The things that we'll cover this morning and for the next seven weeks that I teach right up before Christmas, um, these are basic things. There's nothing new. I hope nothing I say is new to you in that sense. They're simple, but they're not simplistic. They're profound if we take them in and we build a life on them. So nothing new, but it seems an appropriate time. We've been talking about church membership. Who are we? Where are we going as a church? This is certainly basic to that. So listen to this out of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus was winding down the Sermon on the Mount, talking to his disciples about a number of things, basic things in life, forgiveness and God and all kinds of things that we should be aware of. And as he wound down, he said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and he shared three chapters worth of his words, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So guys, all of us have a foundation. And God's word is a great check to say, is the foundation I'm building my life on, is it adequate? When the storms of life come, will it stand? Or will I simply cave? Will my foundation let me down when the storms of life come? So we're basically, we are, Jesus says, we are either building our life on sand or we're building it on a rock. And it's easy to know which we're doing. If we're taking in his word and doing it, we're building on a rock. If we're not taking in his word and then doing it, we're not. We'll pull this apart in a couple different ways. And the first is, you see this at verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Now, in the context of Matthew, you remember in Jesus' day, most people didn't read. There wasn't a lot of literature available. So most people heard God's word. They heard it read at temple or synagogue or at schools. There weren't that many scrolls available. So Jesus says, if you hear my word, we could equally say today, if you read my word, if you're taking in God's word. So Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine, and we add today, if you read these words of mine. Now think about this for just a second. If we're not taking in God's word, we're not even in this equation. If we're not hearing God's word, and think of preaching in the church, think of on, on TV or on radio, think of reading our own Bibles at home or Bible studies together. If we're not taking in God's word, we are not even in the equation to build a foundation of anything. And our life is just drifting along. If we're not hearing, if we're not seeing, if we're not reading, if we're not taking in God's word, we haven't even entered the picture of having a foundation. You know, many people, Christians too, will say something like, Jesus is important, God is important, of the Bible, yeah, that's a big deal. People will say that who never listen to Jesus' words. And then you say, well, really, how much do you respect Jesus if you don't bother to listen to what he's had to say? How much do we respect God if we never bother to sit down and take in what he's bothered to transmit to us through many, many ages and many difficult circumstances to get his word to us today? It's an impossibility 
for a person to build a life that pleases God that can adequately withstand the storms of life apart from knowing what God has said. And so to that simple question, are we, am I, are you, are we reading our Bibles? Is that our daily spiritual food? And also, are we showing up for the meetings of the church? Uh, You know, personally, because teaching is my gift, it's what I love to do, I love to study, I couldn't help not doing it. I can sort of listen to lots of good teachers with a bit of a yawn. And I say that I'm not not talking anybody else down. It's just like, I've read that, I've studied that, I've heard that. But you know what I find? When I'm listening to someone else teach God's Word, my mind is keying in on gears I don't think of by myself. It's not just that they're providing new information. It's that soaking in the truth of God's Word as it's being expounded, I'm thinking thoughts I wouldn't think otherwise. I'm getting things I wouldn't get otherwise. So even if it's old material, even if I've taught that same passage, I realize as as I sit there and I'm taking in God's word, God's speaking to me again through the same stuff, through another voice, a little bit different lens. So are we taking in God's word? That's a big deal. If we're going to have a foundation at all that's going to hold up to anything, we've got to be in God's word. We've got to be taking it in. But let me ask you this. So we take in God's word. What does that look like for you or for me? So if I ask you if you read your Bible regularly and you say yes, if I start quantifying that, what does that look like for you and for me? You know, some of us read Bibles like taking vitamin pills. So, you know, this morning I took my vitamin pills. I popped them in, swallowed them down. I'm done for the day. And that vitamin pill is doing its thing through my body for the day. I don't think about it the rest of the day. So some of us, if we say, well, yes, I read God's Word. And I say, what does that look like? Well, I opened up our daily bread this morning. I read that one-minute thing. I took my vitamin pill. I took, you know, I'm reading God's Word. I took my vitamin pill, went on for the rest of the day, and, boy, that's working away in me. I think, well, that's probably not quite it. You know, if I'm extravagant, maybe I read a psalm. Or maybe I read the proverb chapter for that day on the calendar. And I think, wow, that was good. And then I go on my day. I took my vitamin pill. That's that. I check that off. That's not what we're talking about at all. That's a good start, sort of, but that's not enough. Or how about this? You know, some of us read our Bibles too like uh, people in the Bible times did. So Jesus is in a a Bible-reading, Bible-loving culture in his day. But it didn't do a lot of them much good. Because a lot of the people, especially the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, They read their Bible like this. Maybe you do this sometimes, because I know I do. They read their Bible like this. I read God's Word, and the positive things, those are me. And the negative things and the sins, those are you. So when I read my Bible, I'm built up because I I think I look like that. I look like that good person. Or or I aspire nobly to these things, but, but when I see those sins and those other things, I don't see myself, I see others. Well, that's not the way to read the Bible either. We can read our Bible in a number of different ways and for a number of different purposes, but we should at least start with this. We should start by simply, and this would be a good way to just pray as we're going into the Word any day, God, use your Word to show me my sin and how Jesus meets me in all my needs. If I start there, I'll get a foundation that's a rock that I can build my life on. If I'll start there, God, show me my need, show me my sin, 
because transformation, that's really what we're talking about, right? A life that's been transformed by the truth of God, Spirit of God applying the truth of God's Word. That starts by conviction, by seeing our own need. You know, I was reading in Luke 4 recently, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, He's anointed me to go preach good news to the poor, and on and on. And you know, my first inclination was, Lord, that's what I want to do. I want to preach good news to the poor and, and uh, light to the blind and re release to the prisoners. And I just felt like God just smacked me on the side of the head and said, Mike, you're the one who's imprisoned. You're the one who needs the light. The Messiah. You're not the Messiah. You need the Messiah. Oh, okay. That's a different take. We want to read the Bible humbly. Lord, show me my sin. Show me my need. Show me how Christ meets me in my point of need. That's transformation. And that's the beginning of getting the good of God's word into us and building a life on the rock. So we want to take it in. Guys, that's very brief, I know, but we want to take in God's word. He also says, though, doesn't he? It doesn't end there. Great quote here from, whoa. Great quote here from Eric Little. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Obedience to God's will is the secret of spiritual knowledge. And by the way, it's a secret only because we don't do it. The secret of spiritual knowledge and insight, it is not willingness to know, but willingness to do God's will that brings certainty. That is the truth. That is the truth. Everyone, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine and does them, it won't do to congratulate ourselves if we're simply reading God's word. That's the start. But Jesus says you take in his word and then you do it. You act on it. Listen to this from Luke 11. The setting was Jesus has been demonstrating his power, his messiahship. There's a crowd around him. And out of the crowd, this gal yells out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Man, blessed is that woman that gave you birth, Jesus. Blessed is your mother, is Mary. Now, Mary is blessed, right? Luke's already told us that earlier in the, the account of the angel coming. And you are blessed among women. And this woman's, woman sort of reiterated, man, your, your mother's blessed, Jesus. And Jesus says, rather, no, minimizes that, no, but rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Better than being Jesus' mother is being a person who hears God's word and does it or keeps it. Is Mary blessed? She is blessed. You and I are more blessed than the status of Jesus' mother if we hear God's word and keep it and do it. You know, James, think of Acts 15 and the letter that bears his name. James was the half-brother of Jesus and probably despised him growing up. Scriptures are pretty clear on this. His brothers and sisters didn't believe in him early on. But no doubt James heard some of Jesus' teaching. Maybe he heard the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, very similar. But you hear this same echo in his epistle in James 1. He says this at verses 22 through 25. Well-known passage. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Did you know it's a dangerous thing to read the Bible and not do it? Because do you know what happens? You deceive yourself. If you take in God's word, but you don't act on it, what you end up doing is building up a false lens where you've deceived yourself even though you're reading God's Word because you're not doing it. For many of us, we read God's Word, but it, it fosters self-deception 
because we're not willing to do it. Reading, hearing is not enough. Doing is required. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away at once, forgets what he was like. This is taking the Bible like the vitamin pill. I saw my image in the mirror. I walked away and I forgot what I saw. Did I brush my teeth? Is my hair combed? I forget. I read that thing quickly in the morning, but I didn't meditate it. I didn't apply it. And I forgot what God's word had to say to me. He says, be no hearer. Don't forget. Be a doer. He will be blessed. And that's an important word, both Old and New Testament. Happy, successful. The person who's taking in God's word and acting on it will have a foundation for life. So that's the, so we want to do it. We want to take in God's word in a way that's meaningful, and then we want to do it. Now, let me be quick to say that just as there's a way that we can take in God's word and foster our own self-deception, it's also possible to have a form of obedience to God's word that does not bring life and does not put our life on a rock. Let me give you an example of self-deception of folks doing God's word. Right before the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. We're on the same page here, okay? Took in God's word, I'm doing the will of the Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, there's a lot going on here, but we'll just make a couple points. The first is this. Can you imagine standing before the holy, awesome God and King of the universe and Jesus who died for the sins of the world and laying your claim on his kingdom based on your works? Because that's what they're doing. They're saying, let me into your kingdom because of what I've done. Won't work. <laughs> it won't work. You know, when you talk to people and they're a little unconvinced about their own salvation, they're wondering, where do I stand with God? Guys, don't point them to their own works. Works have a role, and it's important for sure. But that's not the assurance of salvation. When someone says, how do I know? On the streets of London one time, and a guy was passing out these tracts, and she says, sir, do you know where you'll go when you die? And I said, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And she's like, what? Well, how can you say that? Because Jesus can't lie. He told me if I believe in him, I'm going to heaven. My sins are forgiven. I believe. It's done. It's Jesus, not my works, that gives me the assurance of salvation. These guys stand before Christ and say, let me in based on my works. Now, the work they had failed to, and it's implied here, it's not stated clearly, it's implied they'd never repented of their sins and looked to God, to Jesus as a Savior. They'd never humbled themselves before God and accepted the word of life in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And friends, there's trouble for us on this potentially too. Going to church, lots of us are raised in Christian families and we go along and we get along and we go to church and we say, Lord, Lord, but we've never accepted Christ for ourselves. We've never humbled ourselves before a holy God and said, I'm unworthy and I want Jesus' righteousness for myself and I accept that humbly through the eyes and the hands of faith. That's where we need to start. That's the obedience that pleases God on the front end. Listen to this, too, from Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and maybe God would say this to us, hypocrites. Now, listen to this. They kept God's word, didn't they? God said in the law, you're to tithe. You give God a tenth of what he gives you. So they, it says, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You go down to the ridiculous level of tithing these little 
amounts of, of seasonings. He says, but you've, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says this kind of selective, self-congratulatory keeping God's word is inadequate also. Listen to his contrast. This is from Luke 8. Jesus said it this way there. At the end of the parable of the sower and the seed, you remember the story, the son of man is like a farmer. He goes out with the seed and he throws it indiscriminately on various kinds of soil, rocky, shallow, thorny, and good soil. And he's describing to his disciples what that all means. He says this, verse 15, As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They hear God's word. They take God's word in. It doesn't leave them. It's not the vitamin pill or the mirror. They took it, they saw it, and they forgot it. They took in the truth of God's word. They held on to it. It became a part of them. And then he says, out of a good and honest heart, they kept it. That's the obedience God's looking for. That we understand the value of his word. We take it and we hold on to it. It becomes a part of us. It informs who we are. And then out of a good and honest heart, we act on it. We keep it. We obey it. That's building a life on a rock. Guys, this is the thing, too. Jesus is clear. You know, uh, there are portions of the body of Christ that will tell you that if you're a Christian, you escape persecution and suffering in this world. And that's absolutely not true. This, this closing of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is simply one text that speaks to that. Do you know that everybody in life gets trouble? We get rains and storms and winds beat against our house and our foundation. Both houses here experience the same thing. The rock foundation house and the sandy soil house, they both get the same thing. On top of that, Christians are promised persecution. Christians don't get less suffering than the world. They get more, potentially. It doesn't matter what kind of foundation you have, the storms of life will blow. They're going to come through. The, the, the only question is, of what stuff is my foundation? Because the storm will prove it. Do I have a rock-solid foundation? Do I have, have a shifting sand foundation? When life is good and the sun is shining, guys, every foundation in every house looks adequate. But it's the storm that reveals the quality of our foundation. You, you could experience, I'll just give a short list, you could experience many more than these. So sickness hits my life, serious sickness. How do I respond? Am I ready for that? What's my foundation? Am I ready for sickness? To me or to someone I love? How about if I'm going through life without a spouse? That's kind of like the quiet soaking rains that are just soaking the soils of my life. It's not a single assault. It's just this long-term realization life is not what I wanted. I don't have a spouse. But I might also say, or I'm in a chronically painful marriage. Or I might say, my marriage failed altogether. The storms of life. How about persecution and alienation of one form or another, little or big? How about for some of us, it's childlessness. We want kids and we found out we can't have them. My daughter's in the hospital with her firstborn. And the, the couple that comes in to greet them, they can't have kids. And she's celebrating there with Jess and Chris, but she'll never have kids of her own. Or you could have rebellious children. Could go either way on that. Financial failure, persecution, alienation of one sort or another. 
But guys, this is the thing. The storms of life are going to come. Matt talked earlier about Haiti and Cuba and Florida. You know, we've got satellites. We've got all the technology. We see that storm way out in the Atlantic, and we say, hey, guys, batten down the hatches because it's coming. That doesn't always happen in life. The storm hits all of a sudden, and this is the deal. The time to prepare for the storm is before the storm hits. And that would mean today. Since we don't know when the storms come, today would be a good time to prepare for the storms of life by taking in God's word and by doing it. Let me uh, work with you briefly just through a self-test. You don't you can just sit there and think about it, or you, this is on your study sheet. You can fill this out later. As I'm thinking just through the elements of my life, the give and take, the in and out, the day-to-day, how often am I in God's Word? Does it matter that Jesus came to the earth, that God spoke in days past through the fathers and through the prophets and in these last days has spoken to us in His Son? Does that matter to us at all? Are we in His Word? And when I say this, when I meet with folks, I say, you've got to have a daily quiet time. That's a, a condition for meeting with me. You know, I'm not that clever, but when you meet with God, my clever ratio rises. When you want to grow, I can't help you grow, but all of a sudden I find that if you'll meet with God and we get together, you'll grow. A good friend of mine, Jim, told me years ago, he said, um, people that want to grow, grow. And it's like, I don't get the credit. I just realized they just need a little help and they're going to grow. If you're in God's word, you'll find you'll grow. God will start showing you things. And if you do it, if you're in the word and you apply it, 15 minutes for me is sort of the minimum, you'll find that you'll grow. What changes would help me start each day in prayer and God's word if that's not the pattern of my life? And this is where all of a sudden the rubber meets the road. What does it require for me? For some of us, it means going to bed earlier. It means going to bed earlier. It's that simple. But what would it require if, if being in God's word, if, if taking it in and holding it to myself so that I can act on it, so that it's personal to me, if that's not occurring, what would it take to start that? Am I regularly seeing my own sin and needs exposed in the Bible? Guys, if I'm not, I'm self-deceived because the Bible, God's word, will show me my sin. God's word is perfect. My life is not. When I read his word, my sin is exposed. If I'm reading his word and I'm not seeing my own sin, I'm being self-deceived. Do I regularly make changes in my life based on what God shows me? This is the other thing about deception. If you take it in, the word, but you don't do it, you'll end up being deceived. It's just a given. We just shuttle that truth to the side. We act as if it doesn't occur. It doesn't matter. How about this? What change should I be implementing now from what God has shown me? You know, for most of us at about any given time in life, if you said, what thing should you be doing that you're not? Or what are you doing that you know God doesn't want you to do? For most of us on about any day of the year, if you asked us that, there'd be something that we're, we're just not doing. We know God wants us to do something. We're, we're just not there. What thing today should we do? Should we start? Or should we, should we refrain from to please God based on the truth we already have? And last, if I suffered a major storm in life today, would my foundation hold up? We're building our foundation one day at a time. Based on the foundation I've built to this point, would my life sustain the hurricanes and the blowing winds? The biggest thing on this, you've got a quote at the end of your study sheet. 
uh, life based on anything other than God and his word will prove inadequate in time, but it will also prove inadequate in eternity. We, we want to get on God's page through personal redemption. That's the thing that will carry you through. We can sustain lots of loss and heartache and failure in life if we know that Jesus is our Savior and heaven is our home and that glory in Christ's presence awaits us forever. You can go through a lot of suffering on earth, and saints do, all over the world still today based on that. But the foundation everyone needs above every other is simply Christ himself, the rock of our foundation. So are we building on sand? What's our foundation look like when the storms come? That's what happens to sand foundation houses. Or are we building our life on the rock that is Jesus' words, Jesus' words, God's word, and I would simply add the person and the work of Jesus himself. Jesus is the word of God to us. The Bible reveals Jesus to us. Are we building our lives on the rock that is God's word and is the person and the work of Jesus himself? Father, as you expose our sin, would you give us tender consciences, humble hearts, Lord, to simply respond appropriately. Lord, to lay those things at your feet, to accept the cleansing and the forgiveness that Jesus gives us freely. Lord, too, as you approach us, as you show us, Lord, things one after another, would you help us to simply have the childlike faithfulness to follow through in obedience, to please you, and also, Lord, so that our lives have a foundation that's adequate for our own sakes, for your glory, and for the benefit of others. In Jesus' name.